Welcome to the Birmingham Vineyard Podcast. We hope you find it insightful and encouraging. If you want to find out more about us, head to our website, birminghamvineyard.com. So Hosea chapter 13, I'm going to read from the NIV. Um, It'll be on the screen. If you haven't brought a Bible, that's completely fine. Um, And I'll read for you. When Ephraim spoke, people trembled. He was exalted in Israel. But he became guilty of Baal worship and died. Now they sin more and more. They make idols for themselves from their silver, cleverly fashioned images, all of them the work of craftsmen. Instead of these people, they honor human sacrifices. They kiss calf idols. Therefore, they'll be like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears, like chaff swirling from a threshing floor, like smoke escaping through a window. But I've been the Lord your God ever since you came out of Egypt. You shall acknowledge no God before me, no saviour except me. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of burning heat. When I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud. Then they forgot me. So I will be like a lion to them, like a leopard. I will lurk by the path. Like a bear robbed of her cubs, I will attack them and rip them open. Like a lion, I will devour them. A wild animal will tear them apart. You are destroyed, Israel, because you are against me, against your helper. Where is your king that he may save you? Where are your rulers and all your towns of whom you said, give me a king and princes? So in my anger I gave you a king and in my wrath I took him away. The guilt of Ephraim is stored up, his sins are kept on record. I will deliver this people from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, is your destruction? All right. So, Hosea is not... Has, has, our series in Hosea has never been one that has started easily. Um, there's always some um, pretty shocking imagery and difficult things to hear. Um, throughout the series, we have done um, weeks on punishment, on judgment, on discipline, and on so much more. So do check out the other series. I'm not going to repeat myself um, on those, so um, do listen to those. But instead, I, um, I want to try and fi- focus on the last verse and some message of hope that comes in here. And I want to pair it with a passage in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 to 57. I'm just going to read that before I get stuck in. So so Paul writes this, When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with the immortal, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So last week, Kat looked at um, the fatherly love of God that pursues us in our rebellion. And this week, we'll be looking at the love of God that pursues us even beyond the grave. God is the God of second chances. Even death does not have the final word. But before I get to that, um, I need to geek out for a moment. Um, whenever I preach, I like to introduce some kind of long theological word or complex concept. Um, and this week, it, the word is intertextuality. Um, so this is the study of how the meaning of one text, <laughs> Pete's uh, favorite subject, he's getting very excited over there, uh, the study of how the meaning of one text is shaped by the meaning of another. It's a big deal when it comes to understanding some texts in the Bible, and particularly quotes of the Old Testament in the New, um, and it affects our passage today. So, if you turned to Hosea 13, verse 14 in your Bibles, it might say something slightly different than what Becky read. It might say something like this, 
Should I ransom them from the grave? Should I redeem them from death? O death, bring on your terrors. O grave, bring on your plagues, for I will not have pity on them. Now, there may be a footnote that says, go to the passage I just read in 1 Corinthians 15.55 that apparently quotes this passage saying, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Now, it doesn't take a genius to realize they are not the same. In what way is that a quote? Um, you might ask yourself, well, what's going on here is most of the New Testament quotations of the Old Testament are quotes of an ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. The name comes from the fact that 70 Hebrew scholars worked together to translate the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. 70 Septuagint, there we go. Now, this difference in language accounts for most of the differences of, between the quotes in the New Testament and the Old. For example, if you took a French poem, translated it into German, and then that German into English, and then you translated the original French poem into English and compared the two English translations, you would expect them to be different. So the difference is expected and explained and casts no doubt on the accuracy of the translation. So just to reassure you, your English translations are accurate and reliable. But when it comes to the tone of a text, that is much more difficult. I'm sure we've all been offended by somebody's text message or email where the tone wasn't clear. Um, thank goodness for emojis, right? <laughs> well, in the ancient Hebrew text, there were no emojis, so translators need to decide on the tone. And for our passage, the question is this. Should the immediate verses determine the tone, as in the NLT or the New Living Translation, or should the way the ancient experts who produced the Septuagint and the Apostle Paul, should their interpretation of it determine the tone? Now, they understood the tone of these verses to be positive and saw them as an inbreaking of the future hope of the resurrection into this somewhat threatening and condemning message of Hosea 13. Now, this is somewhat of a long introduction to say, and hopefully educational, to say that I think I'm on firm ground and in good company in interpreting Hosea 13, 14 in the positive and about the resurrection. Um, if Phil or Pete um, and the other experts in the room, if you want to disagree with me, we can chat afterwards. Um, but anyway, that having established that, let's, I want to look at three different themes today. I want to look at sin and death, hope in death, and life after death. And so, as means of introduction, has anyone here heard of the Darwin Awards? Yeah? Yeah? Okay. Well, for those of you who haven't, they are not a prestigious scientific honor. No, it's a website that shares true stories of people who have made mistakes that have led them, as the website puts it, to remove themselves from the gene pool. It's been... Uh, <laughs> it's been going on since 1993, um, and when I was a teenager, I found them hilarious. I was, I was reading a few in preparation for this talk and realized I no longer find the tragic accidental deaths of people quite so funny. Um, well, I hope that's a sign of maturity, but anyway. <laughs> we are all aware that our actions can lead to death in this world. And Hosea 13.1 says this, When Ephraim spoke, people trembled. He was exalted in Israel, but he became guilty of Baal worship and died. Hosea sees a link between idol worship and death. And the Bible clearly links 
sin and death. And we see this in these passages. I'm not going to read them all. But for Israel, death was a natural consequence of their sin. Now, by sin, I just, well, if I was explaining sin to my children, I would say sin is anything that makes God's heart sad. That is anything that we do that hurts ourselves, hurts others, or hurts the creation that God um, has made, or offends God. So that's what sin is, and that's what we're talking about. And And for the Israelites, the natural consequence of their sin was when they entered into covenant relationship with the nations around them, choosing to trust in foreign kings instead of in God, it led to their invasion and their very real death. Now, this can be true for us. For example, not so much that we're likely to get invaded, but if we look to substances, for example, for our joy and our satisfaction, whether it be drugs, alcohol, or just comfort eating, in the extreme, these things can kill us. Or, for example, if we choose to trust in our own efforts, our career to provide for us instead of God, then we might uh, see the old saying come true that we work ourselves into an early grave. And this is true spiritually as well. The natural consequences of our choice to sin is to damage our spiritual health, and it can lead to its eventual death. It is a metaphor, but the Bible pictures our sin as creating distance between us and God, eventually separating us from the source of all life and goodness. So somewhere in here are some walkie-talkies. Right. This is an illustration, so it's not perfect, but bear with me. I don't know if you ever had one of these as kids. Uh, maybe not exactly the same ones, but the, the wonderful thing about cheap walkie-talkies is that you can do the test to see how far they, they work. Now, I don't know, I love, when I was a kid, taking them out into a field, you stand in the middle, and you take a step away from each other, see if they still work. I mean, you have to take a few steps before they stop screaming. Um, but eventually, as the further and further away you get from each other, the weaker and weaker the signal gets, until eventually, the signal is gone. And in many ways, well, that's just to illustrate the point I was making, that when we choose to sin, we're taking a step away from God. And as over time, as we keep making those choices, the connection grows weaker and weaker until we find ourselves separate. But the opposite is also true. It says in James 4.7 that if we draw near to God, then he draws near to us. If we are faithful, if we trust in God, and by this I mean more than just reading your Bible every day and praying, but seeking to live lives of holy obedience, then our spirits thrive as we cultivate our connection with God, who is the source of life and goodness. And this flows into our lives. The psalmist in one, uh, the psalmists in chapter, chapter, what am I saying? In Psalm 1, (laughs) the author (laughs) describes this kind of person. It says that that person is like a tree planted by streams of living water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf never, never withers, and whatever they do prospers. So this morning, are you choosing to take steps towards God or away from him? Are you investing in the strength of your connection? Well,
Well, I'm a modern art fan, and uh, some of you may have heard of Damien Hirst, and his, his most famous art installation was a great white shark suspended in a huge tank of formaldehyde. It was called The Physical Impossibility of Death in the Mind of Someone Living, obviously. In this piece, Hearst pictures death as an unseen danger lurking in the background, ready to devour us. The question of how to live life in the face of the reality of death is a question we all have to wrestle with. We need hope in the face of death. And God, in, through Hosea, says, I will deliver this people from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. So in the midst of God's expression of his anger towards Israel, he can't help but allow his mercy to break in and provide hope. Yes, Israel, you will face death, but fear not, I have removed its sting. It will not have the last word. Paul, in the passage we read earlier, says that the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. So what makes death eternally destructive is our sin. To die in our sin is to face eternal separation from God. It's God's moral standard, his law, that gives sin its authority or claim on us. His law reveals our guilt and God's justice. So death in the Bible is not only a natural consequence, but death is a punishment for sin. We see this imagery throughout Hosea and the other passages in the Bible. that The Bible pictures God as a king and sin as treason. The sentence to which is death. The Israelites have rebelled against their rightful ruler and so will die. Now, we struggle with this in the West, particularly in Western cultures. We are mainly because we're rightly dubious about tyrannical dictatorships, but also because we have a tendency to see ourselves not as worse than we really are, but as better than we really are. So the passage says that about mentions the law, and so I just want to illustrate this with the Ten Commandments, just with three. So, put your hand up if you've ever told a lie. All right, keep it up if you've ever told more than one. Excellent. What do you call someone who lies? A liar. Okay, excellent. So we've all established that you're liars. Um, number two. <laughs> uh, so, we all know the classic Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill. Well, Jesus says, if you've ever looked at someone with hate in your heart, then you are a murderer. So, we've clapped up some murderers. There we go. Just pick a, random, a third one. Um, it says, thou shalt not commit adultery or sleep with someone else's partner. Um, but Jesus says, if you look at somebody else with lust in your heart, then you are an adulterer. So, we've all established that. Like me, many of you are lying, murderous adulterers. Excellent. Now, the joyous gratitude that we see spilling out of Paul as he writes the passage we read earlier comes from the fact that he knows he has been rescued from a very real consequence that he actually deserves. When we downplay the justice of God and our own personal guilt and the eternal consequences of it, what we do is actually reduce our felt gratitude and the praise which God deserves. I think the reality is our primary struggle as those who have realized our guilt and put our faith in Jesus is to see ourselves the way God sees us. 
But often outside the church, we can minimize our sin and our mistakes and downplay them because we don't know what to do with our guilt and shame. And we don't believe, really, that there is any power to change. But the good news of Jesus and the resurrection is that all of that can change. The Bible tells us that Jesus lived the perfect life we couldn't live. He died the death that we deserved, satisfying the law of God. He rose again, demonstrating his power over death, his victory over sin, and his ability to provide new life to those who trust in him. In Jesus, our guilt is removed, our shame wiped away, and he provides the power to change and to live a new life. God is the God of second chances. Even death does not get the final word. Now, these are amazing, potentially life-changing truths, but maybe they feel a bit meta. What about the everyday? Where does this really apply? Well, in our daily lives, we often face various forms of death. The death of our dreams, of relationships and hopes, And these come because of the reality of our limitations. There is only so much time I can only maintain so many friendships. In my case, there's only so much time I can only study so many things. I can be a pastor, a husband, a parent, and I can't be a pastor, a husband, a parent, an artist, and run a cafe all at the same time to their maximum potential because there's only so much time. We cannot fulfill our potential in this life because we were made for eternity. With the hope of eternity before us, we can make these decisions, embrace these sacrifices, and accept our limitations without a sense of fear and failure. So what are the situations that you are facing in your life right now where you need God's help to have eternal perspective? Where do you need the Spirit of God to come and restore a sense of hope? All right. Well, another moment of interaction. How, what percent of the people in the UK do you believe that, what do you think live, believe in life after death? Okay, so... Put your hand up if you think that more than 10% of the population believe in life after death. Okay, excellent. Keep it up if you think it's more than 20. More than 30? More than 40? More than 50? All right, we haven't lost your... Actually, it's 46%. So, um, in the World Value Survey, one of the largest and most widely used academic social surveys in the world... Um, they discovered that in the UK, 46% of the population say they believe in life after death. And they were surprised to find that actually, despite the fact that millennials and Gen Z would say they are less religious and they are less likely to believe in God, they are more likely to believe in life after death. So 51% of Gen Z, 53% of millennials compared to Um, 35% of boomers and 39% of war generation. I find that really surprising. But what we see, I think, is that young people are passionate about justice and equality, but have no philosophical foundations for it. 
They are spiritual and believe in life after death, but have no theological foundation for it. I think this should give us confidence because Christianity and the Bible's teachings, I believe, provide some of the answers for these. So we can be confident in sharing our faith that actually there is, people want to hear these things. People want to discuss them. These are realities that people believe in and are living out. But the resurrection is not just something that has been done for us. By the power of the Holy Spirit, as believers, we are not merely spectators of the resurrection, but we get to be participants in this resurrection life. We are called to share the good news of Jesus, the hope of the resurrection, to pray for the sick and the hurting, to care for the poor, to stand against injustice, and to push back the powers of death wherever we find them. And in conclusion, we've seen that it's important to make choices that maintain our connection with God, who is the source of our life. And that it's our faith in God that gives us hope in the face of death, because Jesus has dealt with our sin. The promise of Jesus is that we will be resurrected to physical bodies to live eternal life in God's presence in a perfectly restored new creation that is free from sin and suffering and injustice. This is not just religious wishful thinking to make life a bit better and to motivate us to do some good things. We believe that the historical reality of Jesus' physical resurrection bears witness to the certainty of this future. God spoke through Hosea saying, I will deliver my people from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. And through the person and work of Jesus, he has done just that. So for all of us, if we want sin dealt with, guilt erased, shame wiped away, the power to live a new life, hope in the face of death, faith for real lasting social change, eternal life in the presence of God, who knows and loves you, then we want to come to Jesus. We want to choose to continue to trust in him. Because as Paul says, it is through our Lord Jesus Christ that he has given us victory over sin and death and provided for us this new life. Let's pause, pause for a moment to pray before we come to a time of worship. Father God, we thank you that you love us, each one of us, and that you weren't content with us being separate from you or facing death without you, but in your love you made a way through your son Jesus for us to reconnect with you, our loving Heavenly Father deal with all that separates us, to give us hope in the face of death, to give us new life here and now. And pray, Holy Spirit, would you come and move amongst us? Would you freshly reveal these truths to us? Would you take them from knowledge and apply them to our hearts? And would they stir gratitude and joy and worship and praise in us just as they did in Paul. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. 
We hope you enjoyed the talk and found it helpful. We'd love to welcome you to one of our gatherings. We meet in multiple locations at multiple times on Sundays, as well as in midweek small groups across the city. More information on all of these can be found at our website, birminghamvineyard.com. Thanks for listening. Have a great day and God bless.